0: If you have your Bible, let's turn to Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, and I am going to eventually get to that, and so for the old school folks like myself that like to see every scripture as you go, we're going to be moving around a lot, Um, but you can follow on this screen. This screen will be working next week, and I think the other screens are fine, I hope, but... um, Today's message is really about the heart of our father. And it's something that I'm starting to learn more, is that he desperately wants to be a father to every person on the planet. And so one of the things that we're gonna see in the message today is that all God ever really wanted was to be a father to his children. And so even when you look at the garden and and, and just throughout history, it's been nothing more than a father calling out to his children saying, come to me. And his desire is to see that we all depend on him for protection, provisions, peace. He's the only one that can provide that. Not money, not things, not not human relationships, only him. And so we live in a time where there really truly is an attack on the biblical definition of family. And I would say we're at DEFCON 1 when it comes to that. And for those military people, you know what I'm saying, but for those who aren't military, what that means is that we're at a war status. DEFCON 5 is peacetime, DEFCON 1 is wartime, and then there's a lot of different DEFCONs in between based on terrorist potential and all that kind of stuff, but we are in an all-out war against the enemy with our families. Absent fathers, children afraid and confused, single moms at an all-time high, fractured families, Even families that have both mom and dad in the house and present, there are dads who've been silenced either by choice or circumstances and aren't participating in the raising up of their children. I used to travel, gosh, 50 to 70,000 miles a year from Dallas. So anyone that's traveled by plane knows that going from Dallas to DC or Dallas to LA really isn't that far. So think about how many trips I had to take to get up to 70,000 miles. American Airlines loved me. Um, and I loved their points, but what I didn't love was being absent from my home. And so when Roman uh, was about seven and Ethan was about five, uh, God took me off the road. And, and during that time, there were so many things that I was attending. I was always at the first. I never missed a first. I was at the first baseball game. I, I helped coach when I could. I was at the first school thing or whatever it was. But the the little things that add up to so many really great things, being there in the morning when they wake up, having dinner as a family consistently, putting them to sleep, praying with them, speaking words of affirmation, uh, getting the opportunity to work from home and being able to go out in the middle of the day because they're homeschooled, so don't think that we don't school our kids, but um, be able to go out in the backyard and just play catch with them at lunchtime. Little things like that added up to so much depth and richness in the relationship as a father to my sons that I couldn't have done when I was traveling. And so I did miss out on a lot when they were younger. And so the danger of children being raised fatherless is that there's so many practical things that they might miss out on, but the most important thing that, they, that they'll miss out on is that, that we, we, we risk raising a generation that's being introduced to a loving God and they'll have a hard time seeing him as a father. And that's the potential tragedy in it. They've been waiting their entire lives for a father or a father figure to show interest in them in their future. And that that, that was me. I grew up in a fractured home, a divorced home. Um, I didn't have my dad in the house. And I remember as a seven, eight, nine-year-old child laying in my bed, crying, literally crying and wailing for my father. So I know what those feelings are as a child. And so, when I really look at what the Bible says about our Father, if you go to Genesis, it talks about when when the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Godhead, created human beings. They actually had a conversation amongst each other and said, hey, let's create man and women in our image which is the full image of god the 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 male the female side the the emotions the feelings the unity um you know all of that so that the image of god is really loving unified and and exhibiting all the fruit of the spirit but that's not really the image that we see too often today and so i believe the that the enemy is targeting marriages families and specifically fathers in an attempt to raise up a generation of hopeless directionless and purposeless people purposeless people but we have a father in heaven longing to be a father to the fatherless. It's my assignment today to talk about breaking the orphan spirit. Breaking the orphan spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for adopting us into your family. In Jesus' name, amen. You can tell, I know my senior pastor. So when we look at it, it, it children and the way that we're raised is it, it it depends on on the family it depends on the background it depends on a lot of things and so all of the the situations and the memories of children might be different but there is a similar pain that most children feel and so i remember that this this man and this is a true story uh, he 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 went to the church that that we came from before we were here and when he was about 7 or 8 years old um, his parents had already passed away and this was, he was in Mexico and he was raised by his grandfather and his grandfather was elderly and, uh, and extremely, I mean, we're talking poverty real poor, rural Mexico, um, probably not even paved streets um, you know uh, what we would call a flea market or a swap meet was was their town center um, and so you know just very hard living and so the boy he tells the story of when he was a boy that the grandfather came to him one day and said, hey, would you like a new pair of cowboy boots? He said, oh yeah, absolutely. Who wouldn't want a new pair of cowboy boots? Let's go. So they start going down to the market and they walk past it and he's looking back and he remembers this that, you know, why are we passing and they keep going. He goes, oh no, no, keep coming, work, keep coming. And the grandfather takes him and they land right on the steps of the orphanage. And the grandfather gives the boy to the, to the orphan says, I just can't raise him anymore. And so he tells the story from the perspective that no matter what happens to you, we don't always know if it's intentional or unintentional. And so I'll ask you a question. In, just in that short little story, and you don't have to answer it, but in your mind and heart, go ahead and answer it. Was that an intentional act of abandonment or was that an unintentional act of abandonment? For me, there was a time when my first response would have been, oh, that was intentional. He, he, he took that boy, he, he rejected him, he abandoned him, he dropped him off, he, had, he wanted no part of him. But that was coming out of a filter of a wounded heart. If you responded unintentionally, you probably have a little more compassion and are probably thinking the way I think now is, we don't know. The man could have been sick and about to die and didn't want the boy to see it. The man could have just not been able to provide for him and wanted him to eat. There could have been a lot of reasons why he did it, but to the child's heart, did it matter? Didn't matter, he still was rejected, he still was abandoned, and he had to grow up the rest of his life dealing with that rejection. And ultimately God did heal his heart, but it took a lot of time and effort. And the reason why I show that story is, for me, when I was growing up, because of the divorce and not having a dad in the house, um, it put me in a place where I just decided I'm gonna take life into my own hands. I don't need God. I don't need anyone else. I'm just gonna, because nobody is gonna take care of me if, if I don't take care of me. And that's a dangerous place to be. And frankly, that's what an orphan spirit really does. Because I was hopeless. I didn't have any purpose. I didn't have any direction. I didn't have anyone mentoring me and showing me the way. And so to understand the Father we really have to first understand Jesus, and that's what Jesus said. He said, you'll see the Father through me, and why wouldn't we look at the Son to know about the Father? So how many people were here in December when Shane Willard spoke about Jesus our Rabbi? Right, was that an incredible message? I mean, that message, in a lot of ways, really changed my life. Um, there was a time when I used to be really, really interested in kind of Old Testament, Old Testament, like, you know, rabbinical law and, and Jewish traditions and kind of the whole messianic um, you know, uh, uh, history and all of that. Um, and this is really re- kind of, you'll, you'll hear today, it kind of stirred it back up in me where I'm really interested in, in doing a little bit more study in that area. But the one thing uh, that he focused on in a a general sense was the process that a young Jewish boy went through to become a rabbi. And so unlike or similar to the way our boys today um, want to be professional athletes, back then in the first century, boys wanted to be a rabbi. So imagine being a rabbi is making it to the major leagues, you know, Major League Baseball or what have you. And so, but in order to get there, you got to go to little league, you got to go to middle school, high school, college, eventually get drafted, go through the minor leagues before you get to the major leagues. And so every step of the way, only the best of the best made it. And so Shane broke that down. And one of the things he talked about was from birth to six years old, the the boys, every boy memorized Leviticus. (laughs) I've been saved 20 something years. I still haven't memorized Leviticus and I don't want to memorize Leviticus. (laughs) So. That's first of all. So then at six years old, imagine these boys having to take a test on how well they know Leviticus. Our boys and girls are going into elementary school barely learning how to read. They might have a test in finger painting. These kids are being tested on Leviticus. <laughs> That's crazy. Then if they pass the test, and you can imagine there's a lot of kids that failed that test. I know, well, I don't want to speak. Yet. My boy, one of my boys for sure probably would have failed it. <laughs> Maybe not both, but. But but Leviticus, I mean, seriously, that's just crazy. So then once they passed the test, seven to 12 years old, they had to memorize the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of it. They had to memorize all of it and they actually had to choose a vocation, which I don't think Shane talked about that, but this is what I found in my study was they actually had to start choosing a vocation. Now, most of the time it was passed down from their family. But this was really, and this, was, <laughs> this is kind of gangster if you really think about it, they made them choose a vocation because they knew, the leaders knew that most of them were going to fail, so they needed to have a job to go to once they failed trying to become a rabbi. Well, look, it's, my kids are between 7 and 12. I'm going to start asking a point for a vocation because they are probably not going to be major league baseball players. So they're going to have to fall back on something. But then once they passed that test. Then they went into what I would call the minor leagues, which was from 13 to 30, was this is where they, they were assigned a mentor, a rabbi. And so again, only the best of the best were called to follow a rabbi. So when I look back on my walk, there, God put so many people on my path that I didn't recognize at the time that were really kind of surrogate rabbis in some way to help me Uh, Not just point me to the scriptures and interpret and all that, but also just practical things on how to treat people and manners and those types of things. And so it's critical that every believer, no matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, but especially for new believers, to find mentors, teachers, elder statesmen or women uh, to point us to Jesus and the important truths in his word, but also how to just live life. And so there were so many things in Shane's message that stood out, but two of them really did. And I want to talk a little about them because I think both of these are going to eventually point us to the Father. And one is the yoke of our rabbi, and the other is the dust of our rabbi's footsteps. If you heard the message, that's already speaking to you. If you didn't, you'll learn a little bit more in a while, but I encourage you to go listen to the message on our our app or on iTunes. So the rabbi and his yoke. Every rabbi was raised by another rabbi. Who had their own set of rules and lists, which was, you know, really the interpretation of how that rabbi um, lived out the Torah. Because remember, the Torah was really the main uh, scripture that they had in, the, in those times, um, and you know, the you know the, the Psalms and Proverbs and all the other Old Testament books, the prophets, all they kind of came uh, a little bit later, but but that but the core of what that what they were taught was the Torah, and so a Jewish boy aspiring to be, a, to be a rabbi literally took on the personality and the interpretation of the word of that rabbi and that was called his yoke. And so the rabbi would pass down his yoke to his students. But where did he get his yoke? He got it from another rabbi. So this was generational being passed down um, this yoke. So the nice thing about it is that each rabbi had their own kind of area that they might have specialized on. Some might have specialized in actual teaching, others on actually the memorization, uh, some on traditions, um, others on even, um, you know, uh, how to break down the scripture. You know, there's a lot of different things, not unlike that we would do today in the church, you know, teachers, evangelists, prophets, etc. So the different offices. And so, Having the different rabbis passing their yoke down to their, to their students created a really good diverse group of people to, uh, that made up what we would know today as the church. And so there were two types of rabbis. There was regular rabbis that you just called rabbi. That was what most of them were. But then there's another one called a rabbi with authority that was once in a generation. So you're talking about, and in, and in biblically speaking, 40 years is about a generation. So once every 40 years, maybe, a rabbi with authority would pop up. And if you think about how rare that is, in Major League Baseball, just to make it to a baseball team in the major leagues is, is hard enough. But then within that group of guys, you'll have a much smaller group of all-stars, but then out of those all-stars, an even smaller group of potential Hall of Famers. So you have Hall of Fame players, all-stars, regular players, all playing in the major leagues. And so the rabbi with authority didn't minimize the rabbis. Because if you make it to the majors, you're in. You've made it to the peak of your, of, of, of your uh, uh, career. But a rabbi with authority stood out. And so the regular rabbis were not allowed to change the yoke. So whatever they learned and gleaned from their rabbi, they had to teach to their students. They couldn't change anything. And so the rabbi with authority though, exhibited such unusual gifts and abilities to interpret the scripture and understand God and and ask questions that he was actually allowed to change his yoke. He could add things to his yoke. He could expand upon it. He can do all of that. And so with that, it was very hard for other rabbis or church leaders at the time to trip him up or try to trick him with questions and all of that. And so if you look at Luke chapter four here on the screen, uh, how do we know that Jesus was a rabbi with authority? Then Jesus went to Capernaum, a town in Galilee and taught there in the synagogue every Sabbath day. Okay, so who taught in synagogues? So we know he's a rabbi. There too the people were amazed at his teaching for he spoke with authority. Now when I used to read that I just thought he was screaming or something. I thought he had some authority and I you know he's he's uh, so I always was confused with that. It didn't make sense to me and then if you look at Matthew 7 verse 24 it says but anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Like a person who builds a house on sand, when the, rain, when the rains and floods come and the wind beats against the house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings for he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. Well, why was it quite unlike? Because this was a once in a generation guy. They hadn't seen another one like this in years. And frankly, I'd argue that they never saw anyone like this at all. He completely changed the game. And so he was clearly a rabbi with authority and he used his freedom to change his yoke quite liberally, as we'll see. So the first mention of yoke, I really want to focus on this yoke for a second, is in Genesis chapter 27 and verse 40. Now the context of this, this is a blessing from Isaac to Esau. He had ju- Isaac had just given Jacob the blessing, but Jacob tricked him into thinking he was Esau. So the younger brother tricked the dad into thinking he was older so he would get the blessing. Esau is distraught, begging his dad for a blessing. And this is what his dad comes to him with. You will live by your sword and you will serve your brother. But when you decide to break free, you will shake his yoke from your neck. What's that? (laughs) Is that the blessing of an older brother? There's no wealth in there. There's no long life. There's no, you know, there's none of that. And so Esau was just, you know, in a rage over this, which eventually split the brothers and you know, that's a whole nother story. But when you look at the definition of yoke in this, in this story or in this scripture, it comes from a Hebrew word that means to act or deal with severely, make a fool of someone, to be severely dealt with, to deal promiscuously or shamelessly, to deal ruthlessly with or maybe abuse, and then to glean or learn from or to act or play like a child. And so this was a yoke that was put on Esau by another person. So this, so in Jacob's dealing with him ruthlessly, it put a yoke of oppression on his own brother and it bound him. And so when we look at that, Esau was the older brother, but he didn't act like it. He, he allowed that yoke to influence the way that he acted. And so if you read the, the entire story, he gave Jacob his birthright earlier in the story for a bowl of beans or lentils he was hungry, he said, I was gonna die, give me something to eat. Jacob said, sure, give me your birthright. Okay, well, the birthright back then was huge. That was the, the lion's share of the inheritance of their father. So he basically, for one meal, potentially gave up tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars uh, in equivalent of today as an inheritance for one meal. Uh, Esau also learned from Jacob Uh, different ways to live life, but Jacob was a trickster. He was a manipulator. And so that tells me, be careful who you follow, even if it's family. And he eventually lost out on his father's blessing, but he was still given something, I think more valuable than money. If you look back at at this blessing, he says three things. One, he says, Esau, you will live by your sword. You're gonna have to fight for some things. You're gonna have to hurt some people. You're gonna have to defend yourself. You're gonna get cut. Life is gonna be hard for you, but you're gonna make it. But I'm giving you something to defend yourself. And you will serve your brother. Now we know that if you read the story that that, that, that they didn't stay together. They actually split for years. Now they did come back together at some point. So while he was saying to him, yes, you will uh, serve your your physical brother. He also was saying that you're gonna have to serve other people, brothers and sisters. You're gonna have to humble yourself. You're gonna to have to learn how to get along with people because so far you're proving you, didn't even, you don't know how to do that. And then the third thing, and this to me is the blessing, this is the nugget. When you decide to break free, you will shake his yoke from your neck. He had the power to shake off that yoke. Esau didn't force on him, So people can't force yokes on you. They can't force it on you, but we can, we can walk in it if we, if, we, if we stay with it. And so that to me was something that Esau finally learned down the line, but it took him years. And so the yoke is put on by others, but we have the ability to break free. And then there's one other type of yoke in Isaiah 58.6. And it says, I want to free those who are wrongly imprisoned, lighten the burden of those who work for you, let the oppressed go free and remove the chains Another word for that is yoke, that bind people. Now, the Hebrew word for this yoke is actually like a literal pole that goes across the neck that your arms would be up here, that if you've seen any old movies in the old days, this was kind of like a shackle that the the guards would use to keep people uh, imprisoned. And so the enemy wants to keep us chained with this type of physical bar. And so think about if you have a bar and you have to walk through life like this how hard it would be to, to be a blessing to people, to even feed yourself, to, to actually show intimacy in any way. I can't even really hug you or, or, or show love to you. And so when in bondage, it gets to the point, now even right now, my shoulders are starting to burn. <laughs> my focus is becoming less on this message and more on my shoulders. <laughs> so think about if there was a literal bar on my, on my arm, uh, on my neck. And so when we're in this state, you can tell some people who are in bondage by how much they blame others, by how much they blame their circumstances. If only I made more money. If only I had a husband or a wife. If only my kids would act right. If only my wife would get better. You can tell that there's a, that's a form of bondage that they're in. And ultimately, we can even blame God. Why God? Why am I like this? and the loving father that he is, we have the ability to break free. Because if you think about it, most Christians are like Esau, and they think that abundance and blessings are about money, things, or positions, but true abundance is the ability to break free. That's the true abundance. So yokes of unforgiveness, abuse, bad habits, past failures, any other number of things um, can bind us for months, years, and unfortunately, in the case of many of us, decades of unforgiveness and bondage. So I believe that the most difficult times in my life as a Christian have been when I really didn't see God as my father, and I'm going to do it on my own. And so any time I've done that, a distance has been created between me and the Lord that's been very tough. And so it wasn't until I opened up my heart and said, Lord, you, I really need you to fix those things in my heart. Help me to not just identify the yokes, but help me to shake them off permanently. And so the secret is, is that not just getting rid of the bondage, not getting rid of, uh, of the oppression and holding on to the forgiveness and releasing it, it's then replacing it with the yoke of our savior. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. And then the second thing is the dust. So when we, when we discuss certain topics, you know, they'll, you know, They'll speak differently to different people um, based on their experience. And so the topic of dust is going to be more relevant to women because for better or for worse, we're raised as children for girls to clean the inside of the house and boys to have chores in the outside of the house. Well, the problem with that is is i grew up in apartments (laughs) so i didn't really have anything outside to clean so i was outside playing and all that so my sister unfortunately took the brunt of that so i would go out and play and come back and bring dust in and then she would have to clean it up well and it's and my wife's no different she grew up in a home with five kids three boys so they were all outside doing stuff and they were bringing dust in and so cleaning house is something that she grew up doing but but even today it's amazing how just a little bit of dust can really dirty an entire home if you don't stay on top of it. And so when we look at the definition of dust, I think they'll put it up on the screen. Um, the, there's, I won't read the whole thing because we, we, we all know what dust is. But the one thing that, that, that stood out to me was that in the definition, it's, it says a low or humble condition. And so uh, there it is. So um, so, so when I saw that, I really decided to take a look and say, what did dust mean in the Bible? And so these are just a few things that dust meant in the Bible. Dust is used as a metaphor for death or the grave. Dust on, the, dust, dust on a scale is a picture of something insignificant, because it doesn't matter how much dust lands or, or accumulates on a scale, it's not going to tip the scale either way. It's not heavy enough, but it's there. Dust on the head may be seen as a sign of mourning, defeat, or shame. To eat or lick dust was to suffer humiliation and powerlessness before an enemy. And to make something into dust is destroyed completely. To sit in dust is to suffer humiliation. And to raise from dust is to be rescued or exalted." So dust had a significant meaning throughout the Bible, mostly negative. But for these young Hebrew boys following their rabbi, dust took on an entirely different meaning. There's an old Jewish phrase that says, may his dust be upon you. May you walk so closely behind your rabbi that your footsteps are placed in his footprints on the dusty roads of Israel so that his feet kicks up the dust on the pathway. It is caught in the air of his movements. As you walk through it, the dust clings to your clothing. So these boys were literally following right behind and mimicking and copying and studying their rabbis as they were walking uh, through the streets of Israel. And so wherever the rabbi went, they followed without question. And so it's amazing to me that God would use something as, as insignificant and small as dust to prove a strong point. In order to follow him, we must be willing to stay close, avoid distractions, and ultimately be willing to get a little dirty. Because life, ministry, family, jobs, all of it can get dirty. And so what does Jesus say is the most important focus? Uh, uh, what is the most important thing to focus on as Christians? And he tells us in Matthew 22, verse 35. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him, Jesus, with this question. So remember, religious law, as a, you know, as a, as a rabbi of authority, it's hard to trap or trick a, 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 a rabbi of authority, but it's even harder to trick Jesus. Teacher, which means rabbi, Which is the most important commandment of the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So love God and love people. Now, I grew up in a church that taught God first, marriage second, family third, job fourth. Now, practically speaking, that's true. But what Jesus is saying is loving God and loving people are equal. That you can't love people if you can't love God. And the way you love people will show how you love God. So there's three things that Jesus does to help us fulfill this greatest command. The first one is he calls us. So those of you who went to chapter four in Matthew, thank you for your patience. Now we're there. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon also called Peter and Andrew, throwing a net into the water for they fished for a living. Jesus called them out, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. Now remember, all first century boys wanted to be a rabbi when they grew up. For me, it was baseball. That, that was aborted early because of pride. I was one of the best players in our community going into high school but I didn't wanna go to fall batting practice at lunch because I'd rather be with my buddies. And when the coach asked me, why aren't you going to batting practice? My response was, oh, I'm good enough. I don't need that. Because remember, I was an all-stars from the time I was 11 all the way up through high school. And so the pride based on the gifts that I had made me think that I didn't need to put in the work. So I got cut. Well, I didn't get cut because I was a bad baseball player. I got cut because the coach immediately saw this kid has an attitude. So I think he was hoping that I would come back to him, humble myself, work harder, get back on the team. Well, I showed him I ran track. <laughs> One of my biggest regrets from childhood was not humbling myself and going back. I wish I had a rabbi that I could have been following that would have showed me that. But for, rabbi, for the boys in this day, that, their ultimate goal was to be a rabbi. So they, they had longed their whole life to hear those words, follow me. So it's likely that all 12 of the disciples that Jesus went to longed to hear those words from childhood. And so it definitely seemed odd to me that grown men, working, businesses, families, with all that, would actually leave and follow Jesus. But when you look deeper into it, it would be like the manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers coming to me in my 20s, married kids working, and saying, hey, Emrick, follow me. We're going to the stadium. You got a shot on the team. Would I go? Heck yeah, I'd go now. <laughs> and I know I can't play anywhere near like I used to play, but it would have been a childhood dream- you know uh being being enjoyed and so for for every one of these guys and, and it's like Shane said in his message, Jesus was twelve for twelve, every single a tax collector, a fisherman, all of these guys with careers uh, sure, I'll follow, yeah, of course now to put it in context, the reason why is that we kind of think that Jesus was this obscure person and not on the scene, but in that region, they all knew who he was. He was a famous rabbi with authority amongst the people. So for Jesus, who was this new guy on the scene, amazing people, all that, for him to come to the disciples and say, follow me, they already knew who he was. So They're like, you're you're asking me? Sure. So the point is, that not only did he call these grown men, but as a rabbi with authority to be able to change his yoke, boy, did he change the yoke. Because he was supposed to, at 30, once he got released, to go back to the school and pick the best of the best 12-year-olds and then raise them up for 18 years and train them and then hopefully produce some rabbis. But he said, no, no. I'm, taking, I'm going to pick 12 grown men who've already been rejected and teach them how to go and preach to all the world. That is mind-blowing to me. And so what he proclaimed to the entire religious system was that anyone at any age could now follow me. We need to give him a hand for that. So when we look at the disciples, there were some benefits in picking some grown men, but there was also some downsides. These were grown men physically, but they were also dealing with rejection, past regrets, yokes of religion, insecurity and failures. I mean, we can see, you, know, you can just go and read through the gospels and through the letters. I mean, Peter couldn't keep his mouth shut. The guy could not restrain himself. So, you know, you could see, and then you could actually see the progression of Peter's heart being healed throughout the walk with Jesus, all the way up until the time that Jesus actually died, rose again, and was with them for 40 days. Even in the 40 days, he still was ministering to Peter's heart. Thomas doubted. All of them had fear and faith issues um, throughout their walks, which makes sense. I mean, how many people have gone back to school as an adult, a working adult, parents, whether, you know, yeah, whether it's online or... It's not easy. It's not easy to go back to school when and these guys didn't just go back to school, they left everything. And so they're so so the thing about them is that that they're trying to learn something new, but they've already got years of habits and thinking and ways that they have to unravel as well. And so so I mean, you know, you could see that Jesus got frustrated sometimes, but he also had a lot of patience. And so the the thing that really ministered to me is that Jesus chose the lowly, the sickly and the rejected to prove a point to the religious elite. This wasn't about just choosing the best of the best and, uh, and, 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 and trying to kind of show that off to the world that, that, that we're better than you. And so I'm so thankful that God desires flawed human beings um, to follow him. And so he calls us, then he leads us. So he doesn't just call us out. He then says, now I'm gonna lead you. And so 1 John chapter 2, verse six says, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Well, the new King James says uh, that, you, that, that uh, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So our walk is really representative of our lives. That's, that's our lifestyle. And so when we look at the definition of walk, it comes from the Greek word that means to make one's way, to progress, to make due use of opportunities to live, to regulate one's life, to conduct oneself, and to pass one's life. So when we walk with the Lord, we can't help but draw closer to him. But the problem with the image of walking with someone is that we're next to them. And so when I take walks with Lisla, we're talking and it's a good time to spend quality time. We're talking about life, the boys, you know, work, whatever. But even though we're walking with each other, and even if we're holding hands, which is even more intimate, our focus still isn't fully on each other. Our focus is on our path. Our focus is on, do we have to cross a street? Are there predators? Are there stray dogs? There's all kinds of things that as we're walking that our eyes are on, not just on each other. Whereas it would be much different if I was actually walking behind her and then I could actually start mimicking and learning and really focusing on her walk by being right behind. And so when I, when I started looking at that, I couldn't help but think about these boys and how they did walk with Jesus at times, but they also took time to walk behind him. And so there's seasons in our life where we have to get behind him and watch him and listen to him and learn from him so that when we walk with him, it's a different type of relationship, right? So when we look at the rabbi teaching these boys, it was built in for them to learn from their elder, from from the person who had more knowledge. And so one of the critical jobs of the rabbi was to prepare them to go out and test what they've learned. And so in Matthew chapter 10, I'm just gonna read parts of verses one through 14. So if you wanna read the whole thing later, you can, but um, I kind of consolidate it just for time's sake. Uh, So Matthew 10, uh, starting at verse one, Jesus called his 12 disciples together and gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every kind of disease and illness, which that was a whole nother yoke changer. Uh, Jesus sent out the 12 apostles with these instructions. Don't go to the Galilee's or the Samaritans, but only go to the people of Israel, God's lost sheep. Go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy and cast out demons. Give as freely as you've received. And if any household or town refuses to welcome you or listen to your message, shake its dust from your feet and leave. There's that dust again. So now this time, when we look at Um, Verse 14 in particular, well actually, verse seven, it says go and announce. The other word for announce is tell, which actually comes from a word that means lead. So it's not our jobs to preach people into the kingdom or condemn them into the kingdom or guilt them into the kingdom. It's our job to lead them by the example that we've learned from our rabbi. So if a home or town refuses to welcome you or listen to your message. So the disciples, this wasn't about going out and setting up tent revivals, preaching in churches. This was personal. This was living life with people. This was ministering to them, serving them, working with them. This was a season of life where they were actually sharing their yoke with them. Now, there were gonna be people, like Jesus said, that are gonna reject them. So for the Jews to shake off their feet in the Old Testament, to shake the dust off their feet was a sign that this was Gentile territory, it's unclean. In the New Testament, it indicated that this Homer town had rejected the gospel, making themselves open, uh, just like the Gentiles, open to facing judgment. But what Jesus did was he said, I'm gonna change this paradigm because I can change my yoke. He changed it to ensure his followers that went out wouldn't hold people in judgment they would acknowledge that they rejected the good news but he would also say by kicking off the dust of your feet you're also leaving them a blessing of me my dust is on you so when you kick that dust part of me is falling off with them so as many times as they reject me they can still come to me anytime and so it was a blessing it wasn't a curse when they moved on that's powerful and so when you look at the dust in that scripture, it talks about, it comes from the Greek word, which actually means to rouse. It means to wake up, to bring out of a state of sleep. So the kicking off the dust wasn't just a, 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 a metaphor or, or you know, just some you know, kind of hope. It actually was them uh, being able to walk away knowing that they can pray for those people that hopefully that time with them, even if it was short, was enough to wake them up to the reality that Jesus was the Messiah. Because remember, these were Jewish people. These were the Israelites. These were the chosen ones that had rejected their savior. And so when we, uh, uh, so for us now today, it's not our job to to use guilt or condemnation. It's our job to to use love and and, and peace and, and just love on people. Like Tim says, just be kind. We don't have to always have the Bible and even use the name of Jesus. We could just, man, that guy is really nice. He's different. She's different. That bless. that's part of the dust. And so I heard uh, a wise man once say, and he's gonna laugh at this, religious people find it very difficult to understand a God who doesn't deal with us on the basis of religion, but relationships born of grace. Pastor Exum. I'm not on Facebook a lot, but that was a good one. (laughs) And there's so much truth in that because if you think about it, the old way prior to Jesus was all about religion and works and rules. And if you messed up, you were held in judgment and you were unclean. And Jesus said, no, there is the potential for you to go to hell, yes, but I'm not gonna give up on you at any time throughout as long as you cooperate with me. I'm always gonna extend my hand as a loving father for you to come to me. And so the dust of our rabbi is actually tied to his yoke. And so in Matthew chapter 11, this is where Jesus basically changed the whole game for everything. He says, come to me, all of you are weary and carry heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. Now for us, that's all great. It sounds nice and it's light and all that. But for the people in that time, that, that was a game changer because he's basically proclaiming, you don't, need to, you don't need to follow any other yoke but mine. To the rabbi world, now I understand why they were so angry because what he was saying to the other rabbis was, your yoke is insignificant now. Your yoke doesn't even matter anymore because what you learned from your yoke, your, your, your rabbis, was all based on religion. I'm bringing grace. And that completely changed the game. And now we can see why there was so much rage from the religious leaders and wanting to kill him because what, they was, what he was threatening was their, was their way of life. Everything they knew was changing and they didn't know how to deal with that. And so when he said this, this was after the disciples had come back from their journey and kicking off the dust and healing people and all that. So the memory of that was still fresh. And so this was a turning point for Israel. And so if you think about it, it's his yoke that that frees us from taking rejection personally. We're just the messengers. It's not our job to save people. It's our job to just deliver the message. And so Jesus' rabbi was who? Jesus had a physical rabbi we don't know about because the Bible doesn't talk about it because really it didn't matter. But his ultimate rabbi was his father, was his father in heaven. So he literally took on the yoke of his father. And he says, if you see me, you see the father because my yoke comes from him. And so why would the enemy want us to have a, a loving relationship with our fathers? He wouldn't. Because there's no room for an orphan spirit when you receive the yoke of your father. Amen. There's no room for it. Because once you receive the yoke, you have purpose, you have direction, you have a destiny. We have something to look for. And so the final point is he's called us, he leads us, and the last thing he does, and you'll, if you go through the entire Bible where, where Jesus is talking, everything he does points us back to his father. He points us to his father. Jesus calls us and leads us, both intended to teach us how to love God and people. Now, the problem with focusing on only loving God first, because how many people do you, you know, they treat people bad, but, like, well, but, but, but you know, I love God. I got, I'm good with God. God. God understands, you know, all of that. Well, the problem with focusing on loving, on loving God first and only God is that while we're learning how to love God, we still have to live with people. You know, we joke around, you know, you know that, that you know, ministry and life would be great if it wasn't for people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's where it gets messy, relationships. And some of the worst wounds, some of the worst offenses that we've ever had in our life come from people that, that we love the most. And, and it's just how it is because we're human. And so many believers come out of their salvation experience on fire for God, but then they end up ruining long-lasting friendships and even family relationships because they're so caught up in in judging them versus just allowing the yoke of God to soak in and let them just love on them and be a blessing at the family functions instead of having debate every single time why you're not doing right with God and you need to do this. Seriously? Seriously? Is that the type of, of person that, that, that I wanna follow? Is that the type of God I wanna follow that every single time I'm with you, you're gonna point your finger at me and judge me? It, it certainly isn't. And so many of us do a great job of, of really of focusing on Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, but we tend to kind of put the Father in the corner, not blatantly, but in the back of our minds. And this was true for me growing up without a dad because I never th- saw God the Father really caring about me enough to have interest in me. I saw Jesus is my savior. I saw the Holy Spirit, the power. I, I, I received that. But anytime it came to the father, script, uh, uh, I don't really believe that, I don't know what a good father is. And, and you could have, could have had a father in the home and still uh, I kind of don't really know what a good father is. Because a lot of fathers are in the home physically, but emotionally in other ways are absent. So how can you tell if your relationship with the Father is? How can can you tell how your relationship with the Father is, uh, meaning God, is how you treat other people? How healthy are your relationships? Is there unforgiveness? Is there wedges? Are there there things that we really need to do to reconcile some of those relationships? And the only way we can do it is through the love of God. So Ephesians 1.5 says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family. By bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ, this is what he wanted to do, and it gave him pleasure. So what did he want to do that gave him pleasure? He adopted us. Now, the picture of adoption today is a little different than it was back then. Today, adoption is a nice thing to do, but if you think, like if someone came to you and said, oh, would you think about adopting a child? Most would be like, "Ooh, I'm not ready for that. You know, I'm good, I'm good. Well, back then, to adopt someone was literally to give them the full rights of a biological child. And so, and it does today for us too, but but I think it was seen differently then because inheritance was such a big deal to them back, back in those days. And in God's infinite love, he says here that he's adopted us into his own family through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he's brought us into his family and made us heirs with Jesus. So we have the full rights and authority the same way as if we were his biological children, as, as adopted children. And so being adopted by God illustrates to the believer that we have a new relationship with him, with him. And in Roman culture, which the Jews of that time were intimately aware of, the adopted person not only gained rights of the, new, of the new family, but they lost the rights of their old family, which was fine by them because if you were in an orphanage, I don't want the rights of that place anyway. I'm good with the new rights. And so the new rights uh, took them from being what they would call an illegitimate child to a legitimate child in this new family and became a full heir to their new father's estate. What a beautiful picture. And so immediately on the human side, we think about an estate, like all that comes with that, the physical things. But God is saying, there's so much more in my estate that you'll be blessed by than just things. And so Paul uses the word adoption uh, a few times to show how strong our relationship to God really is because we're full heirs. And then John chapter 14, uh, I'm gonna read one to three and then verse six. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. This is Jesus speaking. There is more than enough room in my father's home. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the father except through me. Now we tend to just focus on verse six but when i look at this this is i mean jesus is there's so much love for his father in this statement i mean look at this there's room enough there's 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 more than enough room in my father's home for you when everything is ready i'm gonna come get you so that you'll always be with me but he's also saying so that you'll actually get to meet my father (laughs) everything he did Everything Jesus did was to glorify his Father. Everything he did was to point us back to the Father. Jesus was determined to show the world that it didn't matter where you came from, who you were before, all of the terrible things you've done, that there's a Father in heaven just waiting for you to turn to him and receive his unconditional love and acceptance. Every child on the planet who's ever lived has longed for the approval and acceptance of their earthly father, in some form or fashion. And some of us are still waiting. Many are calling this the, faith, the fatherless generation. Well, why would the enemy work so hard to fracture families and, and, split, and split fathers from their sons and daughters? Because the absence of an earthly father makes it extremely difficult for children to grow up, follow Jesus, take on the yoke of love, grace, and mercy, when we don't have an earthly example of what a true father really is. A few verses down in John chapter 14, Philip actually cries out to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Jesus' answer was, anyone who's seen me has seen my Father. He had his yoke. Everything about Jesus pointed back to the Father. As a young rabbi in training, Jesus had to have his earthly rabbi, but he clearly had God, his Father, speaking into his life all throughout. He never saw people as his source, for acceptance and approval, it was always his father. The only way to fully receive God's love, healing in our heart and complete approval is to embrace God as our father. The only way to learn how to love people is to allow the love of the father to penetrate our hearts, heal our heart wounds and receive his healing love for our hearts. And in conclusion, Romans chapter eight, verse 15 and 16. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. Paul is stressing to us that God, that in God there there is no such thing as an orphan spirit. We're all adopted as God's children. I know for me, I lived with an orphan spirit for years. I was lost, had no purpose total detachment from my earthly father, and God as my father. Today, right now, I break the orphan spirit and receive purpose, love, and acceptance from our Abba Father. We are called by Jesus to see our father through him. We are led by Jesus to learn how to take on the yoke of our father, our rabbi's rabbi. We are pointed to our Abba Father by Jesus to have an intimate, loving, growing relationship by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we submit to this process, follow our rabbi closely, allow his dust to soil our lives, and see the father longing to love us as his child, this is how we break the orphan spirit.